If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. My name is Nicole Van Tassel. And I'm Erin Sadler. And we are two science teachers dedicated to helping you cut through the confusion and meet the intent of the NGSS so you can master all three dimensions. The NGSS can seem totally overwhelming, but implementing these standards doesn't need to be. And welcome back to another episode of the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. My name is Nicole Van Tassel. I explore science and I'm here with... I'm Erin Sadler from Sadler Science. And we are talking about models. So Erin, what was the question that we got about modeling? So we got a question that says, how do you teach a student to model who has not had any experience creating them? You can't just say create a model of blank and not walk them through a process and provide examples. And that's from Kristen from North Africa again. So I think this is a great um, question because obviously Kristen wants to, or it's just, it's really clear that Kristen wants to, you know, obviously engage her students in this practice, but she's also recognizing I don't just want, I don't want to just tell my students all of this information, but I also know that they kind of need some information to get started. So how do you balance? They need some information. I don't want to just tell them all the information, you know, yeah. How do you balance that? Um, Well, it's so important again and again, like we say this over and over again, but we're like starting with a phenomenon and having them create an initial model from that phenomenon. So whatever, um, whatever, they're seeing, they should just create like a very basic initial um, drawing or diagram or, you know, something like that, that just is kind of what, what they see and what, you know, what they think that they need to include and then move on from there. And I don't think that you should have any expectations, especially the first time that they're doing it, that their model is going to, you know, have any certain things or, um, or, you know, it's not something that you're like necessarily assessing or anything like that. It's just, it's kind of like, you know, free floating thoughts, I guess. I don't know. Exactly. I think, you know, so you always, we always start our units and our like storylines and everything with a phenomenon. So I think it just makes sense. You want to get your students thinking about what they already know about it and what they think about it. And this can, you know, happen during the it can happen like after they've generated some questions it can happen during the observation process um but either way i think when you're asking them to draw that initial model you might not even use the term model because that is kind of like a loaded word and they might be like i don't know what a model is like what am i supposed to really do here so it might just be hey draw what you see and and i typically add like use some captions to explain because i I want them to add a little bit of words and and 
I don't really put a requirement on like the number of words or anything like that, but Hey, just like put some labels on. So I kind of understand your drawings because sometimes students, you know, some are very artistic and some not really sure if this is like a fork or a, I don't know, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so, so I think just starting, but, but like you said, having just no really expectations about what you're going to get other than draw what you're seeing and what you think is happening, you know? I really, um, rather than, I don't have them like do labels or captions or anything like that with the first one that we do. I just like have them share their models and we make a list of what makes a good model, what makes it easier to understand and all of that. And that kind of comes up um, in that conversation, like, um, like, oh, when they put a caption or they put a label that helped me understand. And even something like um, one of the kids said, oh, it was so much easier, the kids that put color. And, you know, because then I could see the different pieces of the model. Um, like that. So yeah. they literally discover the importance of labels and color literally on their own. I love that. That's even better. Um, and I think when you, when you can have those conversations also about maybe like the, the choices of color and like how, um, like if something's hot, like we as a society recognize like red is hot and like blue is cold. So how we can use that in our, you know, those kind of understandings too about kind of like, symb like symbolic kind of color choices or, or drawing choices or things like that and how we can incorporate those into our models even. Absolutely. And even having that conversation, you know, with students, like, you know, if your student is really good at shading or something like that, that, you know, that color piece might not be necessary, but for like, you know, as general terrible drawers like me, <laughs> you know, it's good to, you know, tell the difference between something hot and cold because you would never be able to tell it from a drawing yes. without that color. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So you start off kind of like just a drawing, then you're analyzing what helps basically so like kind of good model versus bad model well actually at this point I mean you you have introduced like hey what you've done is a model this is what we've you know we're, you're you're using a picture or a representation to explain something this is a model um so you've introduced that term and you're talking about like what makes a kind of a good model bad model in the sense of helping us interpret it and understand it um, I also like to spend a lot of time on emphasizing like the strengths and weaknesses so that understanding, I think a lot of students don't recognize because it's not explicitly taught, like the limitations of models. And I always think of the solar system models as like the perfect, I don't know, example of this because students just go through like their whole life thinking the like scale they having no real conception of the scale or size of planets compared to one another and things like that because they see the same drawing in their textbook mm -hmm. and they don't and and very seldomly is it actually discussed you know the sh the the limitations of that picture you know so when we can emphasize like, yes, this is a picture and we're doing our best to illustrate, you know, what's happening, but it's still just a picture. It's still a, we, we can't incorporate all of those things because, you know, if we put the sun in the same picture as like 
all the planets, then you wouldn't like see the planets. <laughs> They'd be like a speck. <laughs> well, and I think that like we've talked a lot about um, those subcomponents of the science and engineering practices, and that's one of them that that we see. And I think that that's a really good way to um, have like get have your students get better at modeling without actually like spending a whole day modeling is like a lot of the, you know, textbook publishers and a lot of the curriculum that we're seeing has examples of models. And, you know, you can just say, hey, as an exit ticket, what is a limitation of this particular model? Like That's perfect. And that's such an example, like perfect example of just how we can easily bring a little bit of 3D instruction and in like bite-sized pieces into our classroom. Like, a uh, quick five, 10 minute activity, five minute question during a reading, during a, um, you know, group, uh, one group's doing something and you're working in it with another group, you know, let's look at this model, write down some limitations, you know, and, and you can bring in those three dimensions and those bite-sized pieces. You don't have to do a whole modeling task every time you want to address that skill of modeling. Yeah. Or even like if you're doing a simulation or something like that, like the simulations always have limitations and that's a like a really good way for, you know, to introduce that concept of limitations. And then it also strengthen, strengthens their understanding of models. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, okay. So we said we like start just kind of no expectations. Here's a drawing. Then you're kind of adding in what you've done as a model, looking at like the good, and, and quotation marks here, like the bad, like what, but really what makes us, helps us understand what we want to look for in a good model. Um, and also, I think it's important, you know, we've talked about this in the past a lot in, in blog posts, I think probably in a podcast episode, you know, modeling is not an art project in an NGSS classroom. It's not just taking the water cycle and making a pretty picture about it. It's not taking the cell and making a, a jello project or jello <laughs> edible thing, a cake. Um, it's actually using it to explain a phenomenon. So you're always starting with that phenomenon or you're using it to predict the phenomenon or something along those lines. Um, so want to, you know, add that in there. But uh, then looking at the strengths and weaknesses of those models. Um, also, I think that it's, we should probably say this again, but the students should be creating the model, not the teacher. They aren't like recreating your model that you've already created. Like for example, like that Oreo cookie moon phases, like where they are recreating something that's already kind of done for them, <laughs> you know, like yes. it's their model. It's not your model. Right. Or like where you tell them step-by-step step, do this and then do this and then do that. And I mean, there are I don't want to say there's never a place for an activity because sometimes maybe you want to build a model like that so that you can carry out an investigation or so that you can test an idea, you know, so there may be times where first you build the model and then you build from that model, you know, but in general, like if all you're doing is just building the model and then that's, then that's it. That's, that's not model. That's not yeah. modeling. Yeah, that's not meeting the intent of the of the standard. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, and in fact, even if you're telling them do this, do this, do this, and then you're going to test it, that's not really modeling. That's really just getting ready to test something or getting yeah. ready to yeah. conduct an investigation. So you're really just doing the prep work for it. So anyway, <laughs> um, so you build your models, you have them go through, they've identified these are the um, 
characteristics, these things I want to have on my model. Maybe it's color, maybe it's captions. Uh, they, these are like the strengths and limitations of models. Then what do you do? They did it for the initial phenomenon. Now what? So I think the next step is that you're introducing some sort of investigative phenomenon um, so that they are getting new information so that they can add it to their model and revise their model. So it's not just, you know, like taking this, this initial like phenomenon and something that we don't really know much about and making that model better. We have to add more information as well. Yes. I think that is one of the, like really one of the most important things that we can do. I think just from a learning perspective, it can, it shows our students that their ideas grow and change and that there's nothing wrong with being wrong at the beginning that are, we're learning. Um, so from a learning perspective, I think it's great, but also that's where they see how the site, their science understanding is growing. And a lot of times students, they don't realize how far they've come in their like understanding. So when they go back and they like change their, their original ideas, they, they can see how those ideas are evolving. Um, it's just like a really good metacognitive practice too. you know, going back and like thinking about this is what I thought. And now I'm this new and this new information maybe doesn't fit. And so now I need to change my idea or this information does fit and it supports what I think. And now it's evidence for, you know, what I thought was happening here. Yeah. And also like, um, the, the subcomponents also talk a lot about scale. So, you know, maybe they're, they're thinking about it from a different perspective, a different scale, like a different time scale or a different, you know, like size scale or, you know, like, so, so when they get that new information, it changes, you know, their perspective on that phenomenon. Yes. And when they, and then they're going, so they go through this whole practice and really they do this repeatedly throughout, you know, the unit, they're going back and they're revising models and maybe they're revising their original one, or maybe they're like constructing a new one kind of based on the same, you know, returning to the same phenomena. And now with the information they know, now they're developing a new model, depending on maybe if they're a way off, maybe they need to, you know, start from scratch to revise. Um, but either way, like throughout the instructional unit, they are, building this model or revising their ideas, typically by the end of the unit, I mean, if you're, if your focus has been on modeling, usually that's like what your assessment mm-hmm. science and engineering practices is going to be built on. Right. And then it's not like I, you know, Kristen's concern was my students are not going to know how to build that model. Well, you've been building, they've been building them the entire unit and they've been revising them and they've been thinking about how do I improve it? And, and now when you go to say, like, create a model for this new phenomenon, you know, they know what well, I should include. Maybe I should include color here or maybe I should include the, the captions. Maybe I need to show the energy moving or the the scene, what I can see versus what I like can't see. So like the scale levels, the, the energy, um, the boundaries of the system, things like that you know, those like cross-cutting concept lenses. Yeah. And so if you look at the cross-cutting concept of systems and system models, it really helps um, kind of uh, like break down what we really want in a model. Like, for example, it, um, it says like, you know, listing components of the model and how the, those components work together and boundaries and how, you know, energy is transferred and all of those kind of things. So, um, so when you look at 
the look at modeling through the lens of the cross-cutting concept, it really helps kind of like list the criteria of a good model. And also, you know, like some of that comes up in your conversation with students when you're having that conversation about a good model, but a lot of times they forget things like energy or, you know, something like that. So then, you know, that can be a criteria that you add after the fact. Yeah. I mean, for my assessments, I would always like put like a checklist of, you know, include energy in and out or um, what you see and what you don't see or at this level or that, you know, level, you know, what? whatever, whatever requirements I criteria I'm looking for, because students do need that. Just you need to be clear about what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I um, often use like the same graphic organizer over and over again so that they are like, they know what goes in the spaces, you know, like they know what those spaces mean and then they fill in those spaces and then have like, um, I use a graphic organizer where like the middle is their main model and then there's like places for an explanation around the outside. So um, so the more that they get used to using that, that scaffold, the better their models become. Yeah, and then I mean, eventually they get to the point where they don't even yeah. like, we need those prompts yeah. but so they get super comfortable with like odd like oh yeah this definitely goes on my model this definitely goes there they yeah. need yeah. um well I feel like that is pretty a good pretty much a good summary of how you would go through that process of um really like teaching kind of modeling to your students I mean it really does start with just giving them a go at it mm-hmm. and not expecting anything but then building from where they are and, 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 and then, and yeah, just growing their models over time and adding those components. So it's not just like a one and done lesson. It's, it's building their models over time. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's why the, there's a progression from kindergarten through 12th grade for the science and engineering practices. They're going to get better at it over time. And that's the expectation. So, you know, just, yeah. Just try it first and then see what happens. Yep. And then, like we mentioned, anytime that you can just throw in and, you know, you're reading through a text or um, you have um, a picture of a model or whatever is relevant to your content, it's easy to just throw in that kind of question or discussion of the model presented as just a review to, to keep, to practice those, those practices and yeah. that three-dimensional instruction on you know the daily yeah or even a graph like a graph is a type of model so you know yeah yeah Yeah, awesome perfect i'm so glad we got to talk about modeling i like modeling i like modeling too it's one of my favorites it is it's one of the science and engineering practices that i'm like i tend to lean toward because i've always talked about you lean towards some you lean like away from some i lean toward modeling for sure definitely um Anyway. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Teaching Science in 3D, and we will catch you next week. Sounds good. See you guys later. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. It's Erin. If you're interested in having your question featured on our podcast, go to teachingsciencein3d.com slash questions. You can submit your questions in writing or submit an audio file that we'll feature on the podcast. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we would appreciate it so much if you could rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. 
You can get detailed podcast recaps at teachingscienceinthreed.com. And you can connect with us on Instagram at teachingscience underscore in 3D or on Facebook at Teaching Science in 3D. We look forward to hearing from you. Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com slash 3D planner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com slash 3D planner.